step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. I've owned my company for 14 years now, and I can tell you that payroll is a four-letter word. I hate doing it. It eats up hours I don't have, and it costs me money I could be saving. But my accountant's too expensive. And I'm not sure who to call, but I know I need help. We're Paychecks, and we take all the hassles out of small business payroll. We save you time and money. It's easy. Call, fax, or give us your payroll information securely online, and we take care of the rest. We calculate the correct taxes, manage payments and direct deposits. We even send out your checks. Payroll doesn't need to be a four-letter word anymore. We're so sure that we can save you time and money that we'll give you a month's payroll free. Just for calling 877-757-2782. Get one month's payroll for free. Call Paychex right now. 877-757-2782. That's 877-757-2782. All writers are prone to becoming so attached to our characters and stories that we struggle to see why a passage may not be working. It takes another set of eyes to help us nurture our writing to full maturity. At Black Wolf Editorial Services, we strive to enable writers to develop and grow, shaping stories into masterpieces that can stand the test of time. Editing services are provided for all genres and all age categories. Services range from the critique of the short story through to line edits on full-length novels. We also offer assistance on generating writer's bios for your websites. We won't abandon you to the masses. We want to celebrate with you in your successes. Black Wolf Editorial Services, nurturing your writing into maturity. For a full list of services and prices, visit us at blackwolfeditorial.com. KLRN Radio has advertising rates available. We have rates to fit almost any budget. Contact us at advertising at klrnradio.com. Hey, folks. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Dr. Richard Harden. We are on the same mission, which is Waking Up America. We just have different paths. So stay tuned for some information on how you can keep up with Richard and all his work. Visit Richard's website at raharden.com. That's the World Wide Web at rahardin.com. At his website, you can see a summary of the six books he has written, where purchases may be made. He also has a link to 18 videos on YouTube and several blogs about Christian beliefs. If you prefer, visit amazon.com backslash Kindle and type in Richard Harden to see and purchase his books. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps stand ready to defend the American way of life. The few, the proud, the Marines. As a mother, you don't want to have to worry about this bill is coming, but then she needs this chemo. That's a decision you shouldn't have to make. At St. Jude, a family never sees a bill at all. It's like the world has been lifted off of your shoulders. 
the treatment doesn't get any better than what you receive at St. Jude. It saved my life. It saved my daughter's life. It saved our family. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures. Saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. You're listening to the Spark Radio Network. Internet radio like you've never heard before. Innovation, creativity, and imagination are all said to begin with a spark. So fasten your seatbelt and take the ride of your life and listen for the spark. You are listening to KLRN Radio, where liberty and reason still reign. around us is an amazing place filled with beauty and with science. But let's face it, sometimes the science can be so confusing that it takes a PhD to understand it. Well, you're in luck. I just happen to have a PhD. Come and take a seat. Perhaps I can explain the world around us in a way we all can understand. Welcome to Conversations in Science. I'm Dr. Judy L. Moore. Call me Doc. Hi, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another show of Conversations in Science. I am Dr. Judy Elmore, and I do have a PhD, as my intro says. For those of you who are new to the show and have never heard any of these shows before and you want to know how it works, well, I do the best I can to explain whatever science topic we're talking about for the week, and hopefully in a way we can all understand. But to help me, I have my producer, Jesse Sanders. Where are you, Jesse? What's up, Doc? Hi, Jess. Right, Jesse's job is to make sure I don't get too technical and, of course, to make sure that everybody can understand this. But, Jess, I have a confession to make. What's that, Doc? I don't know everything there is to know about science. Oh, you're my science go-to. So what, what's, what topic is it today that you had to call phone, play phone a friend for? Yeah, yeah. Today, we are going to talk about genetics. And I'm sorry, I don't know very much about genetics. And I struggled to understand. So I did the best I could. And I decided it was best to play phone a friend. And I phoned Dan Cobalt, who actually is a geneticist. Welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that you actually welcomed and decided to come on board. And it was like so much fun. So, Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us what actually is a geneticist? Sure. Uh, Well, my name is Dan Cobalt. Like you said, I'm a genetics researcher at a major children's hospital, and I'm also a science fiction author with HarperCollins. But to address your question, a a genetics researcher is someone that really understudies how um, our inherited material, our DNA, contributes to who we are and whether or not we get disease and what we look like and basically anything that can have an inherited component. That's what we do. Cool. Okay. So Dan, the fact that I have, you know, the color of hair I have and the color eyes I have, that's all in my DNA. Uh, Yes. Usually, unless you're wearing contacts. Well, not the kind that change the color of my eyes. Okay. Just the ones that make me see better. Yes, those, I mean, those are good examples of things that are 
heritable, meaning that there's a big genetic contribution, but like many things that make us different from one another, it's not all genetics because the environment can play a big factor too. Okay. Cool. That sounds pretty cool. So okay, far, so Dan. before we get too carried away, DNA. What is DNA? Well, really, you're starting with the fundamentals, huh? We are starting with the fundamentals. We've got a lot of children that listen to the show, so why not start with the basics? DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, and it is the molecule that's in our cells in our body. It's in every cell in the body that encodes the instructions to make a human being. And all of us have pretty similar DNA, but with slight differences, uh, genetic variants that account for why we're not all exactly the same. Okay, hey, Dan. Does that is that does that explain why I'm addicted to caffeine? Uh, you know, I don't know why. I, I I'm not sure I can weigh in on that one. That's on you. Okay. <laughs> I will say that's pretty common. I like my caffeine too. Okay, so so the DNA basically tells us it's like a little funky sequence that says everything of who we are, but. Is there something else that's potentially from a genetic level and telling us bits and pieces? I'm not sure what you're getting at with that one. Okay. Um, well, okay, we've got the DNA, but is, what else goes into the genetic? Are we, is it just the DNA that you're looking at or is it other things? Oh, in the study of genetics, you mean? Yeah. Right. Uh, so we definitely look at the DNA and, and we're particularly interested in the variants in DNA that are different from one person to the next. But that's just one part of what we study. Then we want to look at what we would call phenotype or the physical characteristic that we're trying to study in someone, like whether or not they got a disease, uh, what they look like, how they respond to certain medicines. So that's the other part of the equation that we bring in in genetics to try and understand the relationship between what you inherited and who you are and, and what's going on with you. Okay, so it's not all about what we get when we're sort of made as the, the lovely baby coming in, the fetus. It's a bit more than that, isn't it? Well, like uh, for most traits uh, that people are interested in studying, there's a genetic component and then there's other contributing factors, random chance, things like diet and exercise and behavior and, and other factors that can influence things like disease susceptibility. So it's all part of a really complex equation. Hey, Dan, I got a question. Identical twins, do they have identical DNA? Yes. Identical, quin, identical twins form from a single fertilized egg. So generally speaking, their DNA is the same. Um, there can be some differences between twins, like mutations that happen after they separate, but usually they're exquisitely rare, and for the most part, they have the exact same DNA. Wow. I think it's, as a science fiction author, you could have some fun with that. Right. I actually have twins, so I'm kind of personally interested in it, but my twins are fraternal, so they only share about half of their DNA. Okay. Okay. So fraternal twins... What's the difference? Well, fraternal twins are just two infants that come in the same pregnancy, but they're not from one egg. So they're brothers or sisters, uh, but they're not identical. They have a different set of genes. 
Okay. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> you bet. Okay. So you're a geneticist. What actually is your field of research? Where where do you sit and play? So I work with something called next generation DNA sequencing. That's sort of uh, the latest and greatest way that we sequence individual genomes of like they did some years ago when they sequenced the first human genome, the Human Genome Project. Now the technologies that once took 10 years and $100 million to produce the first sequence of the human genome, now we can do it in about five days for a 1000 bucks and look at one individual genome. So we're studying not just one, but usually dozens or hundreds or thousands of genomes at once. What and is that, a genome? I was genome, just about to ask that same question. <laughs> all right, I guess we should start from the top. So when we say genome, that basically means everything that's in your DNA. And the human genome is about 3.2 billion base pairs long. That's super long, right? And it's spread across 23 pairs of chromosomes. Uh, they're, most of them are numbered 1 through 22 by size. And then you either have two X chromosomes if you're a female or you have an X and a Y chromosome if you're a male. So altogether, all those chromosomes, they add up to 3.2 billion base pairs. And that, generally speaking, 99.99% of that is the same from one person to the next. It's that other 0.01% that we're interested in studying because people, as you know, are not all the same. And we want to find out what makes them more susceptible to disease or more resistant to certain infections, etc. So, Dan, would that be why I don't get poison ivy, but my husband does? Are we going to have to answer every question about what's going on with you and does it explain why you're different from everyone else? I'm just curious about this. <laughs> no. Okay, Jess, Jess, off you back go. Off. <laughs> if we start delving into psychiatric issues, I'm going to have to start deferring these things. <laughs> no, but I... I can be exposed to poison ivy and it doesn't bother me, but yet I've got friends and other people that they've so much as brush up against it and they break out like crazy. Is that a genetic thing? It can be. That's that's really unusual and you're really lucky because poison ivy is like the most common allergy and almost all people have some level of allergic reaction reaction to exposure. There are genetics at play, but it's also your immune has to do with your immune system. So I would say that there's probably a genetic component to it, but it could also be sometimes your your immunity changes over in life. Some people who have been exposed a lot to something, they sort of build up a resistance to an allergic reaction, and that can happen with poison ivy. But um, yeah, you're you're in the lucky probably ten or fifteen percent of people who don't have a reaction to poison ivy. That's cool. Okay, so. We were talking about genome, and you mentioned the Genome Project a couple of times. What is the Genome Project, and why is it of so much interest? So the Genome Project was this effort. It was started in uh, the late 20th century to sequence all the bases in the human genome and build basically a reference of this instruction book for making a human. So it was a long project, many years, many millions of dollars, to build the first draft because we didn't really know much more than, yes, um, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes. We didn't know what the composition was, just that there were four bases 
ACGT that went into it in some combination. So the Human Genome Project set out to build the first map of the human genome. And, and it's actually a composite of about 10 or 20 people that they sequenced all of their DNA to build out the map and, and figure out what sequences are on each chromosome. So that was Only the Human Genome Project. 10 to 20 it, people. Yeah. It, the, the Human Genome Reference, the, the one that we use kind of as the basis, came from 10 or 20 people. Because obviously we're not all the same, so I think they were trying to capture some of that diversity in building that reference. All right, so have they since expanded that map to incorporate more than 10 to 20 people? Because that doesn't sound like very much diversity. They have considerably, right? But we're talking about the reference, which is really just, um, you know, it's the template to which we compare all the other people that we sequence. So. Okay. Certainly, over time, I think we're on build number 38 of the human genome. It's the latest build. So each time they refine and improve the human genome draft that we've put together and how it's assembled. And some of those recent improvements have been trying to capture more diversity in it and also just uh, to make it uh, more representative of people that we might be sequencing for research or clinical reasons. So... There are so, for example, in the earlier versions of the genome, there were certain bases that were actually only found in a minority of people, but they just by chance happened to be some of those that were selected for the first uh, human genome sequencing. So they were really minor alleles that looked like they were the reference. So some of the recent iterations of the genome have been trying to uh, make sure every base is the most frequently seen base in the human genome so that we can easily identify where the differences are. Oh, okay. Okay. So how much of the um, DNA and genome sequence do we actually know? Do we know a lot of it or is it, or is there still sections that are a mystery or how much of it That's do we know? That's a good question. Uh, I think we have a pretty good handle on uh, the major components of the genome and where they go and what the chromosome composition is. But we're limited a little bit by the technology because when you sequence DNA, usually you sequence a fragment that might be 100 to 150 base pairs, sometimes with special technology, it might be a few thousand base pairs long. And rather than just one long string of DNA, we sequence it in these pieces, and those have to be assembled into this super complex assembly on a per chromosome basis of all the bases in the human genome. So there are absolutely gaps even in our latest reference assembly where um, we don't know exactly the precise order some of these sequences go in. And this is especially true at uh, in highly repetitive regions of the genome where the repetitive, difficult to figure out section of DNA is longer than those reads that we take of it, it's really hard to understand how many copies there are in there and, and how they line up with one another. So we have a pretty good knowledge of the genome. It continues to get better, but we are limited to the limits of technology. Okay. So limits of te technology. Okay. I am going to just temporarily put on the, the writer and slash scientist, yeah, that, that sort of hat. When I watch something like NCIS, they always have the DNA sequences or the DNA analysis coming back really quickly. How long <laughs> does it really take to do a DNA sequence? 
Well, what what they do on so first of all, don't rely on NCIS or CSI for a good picture of reality. That's just a general general oh, yeah, thing. No, no, I'd no, also no. point out that, that like CSI techs don't interview suspects <laughs> either. So, but um, you know, f- for forensics, we actually are u- only looking at about fifteen different places in the genome where there are these um, tandem repeats that tend to vary from one person to another. And so by the time you look at about 10 or 12 of these repeats and how long they are in a, in a person, that builds up a unique profile. It's sometimes called a DNA fingerprint that uh, only one person on earth is likely to have. So when they do DNA testing for forensic purposes, they really just look at these 15 places and, and say, okay, how many repeats do we have here in this individual at each of these places? And it builds out that DNA fingerprint. And they that's what is stored in the FBI database called CODIS of, uh-huh. of DNA profiles from crime scene testing and, and inmate testing and, and that sort of thing. So that's a much quicker look to look at 15 places than to look at all 3.2 billion bases in the genome. That's part of the reason it is so fast. But does it take like an hour or is it several hours or is it several days or how long does so, it take to actually do these tests? I think so that for the technology used in, in forensics, the STR typing and STR is short tandem repeat. That's those length altering places in the genome I mentioned earlier. I think that the actual lab work can be done in a matter of hours, but that's different from what it takes to perform a test in a forensic laboratory that has to hold up in court, et cetera. That process, number one, has to follow a rigorous set of protocols to make sure everything is done just right. And number two, typically these are federal labs with a large backlog of samples. So you don't get the, so it might only take a few hours to generate the profile, but you got to get in line for the other 250 DNA samples that are in line in front of you. So I think that the experimental work can be rather quick, uh, but paperwork it's, it's, it's getting in line. <laughs> right. Okay. So shifting it away from science fiction and, and, crime thrillers and all that sort of thing coming back to dna and um genetics in passing things on to children there is a lot of different diseases out there that are genetically related how do they test for those you mean how do they test to see if people are going to get them or try and understand the genetic basis of those um, more of if people are going to get them i know like huntington's disease is wanting them but one of them um, just what do they do? Well, um, so I think really the first test is given a disease, how do we know whether or not there's a genetic component to it? And there are a few ways that they uh, will go after that. One way is by looking at uh, heritability by by studying twins, which is a good way to look at two people that have the same birthday, grew up typically in the same exact environment. Sometimes they have the same DNA if they're monozygotic twins or identical twins. And then um, one may get a disease and one may not. But based on how often both of them get the same disease, we can start to estimate the heritability of disease. We can figure out what what is the genetic contribution to a certain disease. And for a number of 
um, diseases that are really well studied where we understand the genes involved. We know that, for example, in Huntington's that there's a gene in which variation can predispose you to Huntington's disease. That's true for a lot of uh, for a lot of sort of infamous diseases where there's a strong genetic component. Another really commonly known genetic disease is cystic fibrosis, for example. Mm. So first we, when we understand that disease is genetic and then typically the next thing is for us to find what are the genes involved in the disease, some diseases like the ones we just mentioned, cystic fibrosis and Huntington's, typically those are caused by variants in one gene in a person and that gene is known. So there are clinical genetic tests that can be done to see if people carry known disease-causing mutations in those genes. Other times, um, it may be known to be a genetic disease, but we don't know all the genes that uh, can cause it yet. And so sometimes there are expanded tests that can be done to see if a patient has any variants or mutations in a wide set of genes that could be related to their condition. But genetic okay. testing is usually only done when there's a good reason to do a genetic test, like a suspicion of a genetic disease, but the diagnosis is unclear, or maybe the, maybe the genetic information can help guide the management of treatment. That's when we do genetic testing. If you go to the doctor and you say, I'm sick and I don't feel good, you generally don't get a genetic test right off the bat. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm just, I've got a friend who her child is actually got um, it's actually Angelman's, which from what I understand is comes from two genetic markers come from each of the parents. Are there diseases that are like other diseases that are like that where you have the two components, the two parents having to their genes having to mix in a certain way that causes these genetic diseases and genetic abnormalities? Yes, um, especially with many rare, severe diseases, especially ones that affect children, often um, can be recessive. So what you're describing is a recessive disorder where you get one defective copy of a gene from mom, one defective copy of a gene from dad, and now you've got the disease. That's sort of a classic recessive disease. So there are Obviously, many diseases that follow that recessive pattern of inheritance. There are also diseases that follow a dominant pattern of inheritance where you can get the defective copy from either mom or dad, and now you're, you've got the disease too. So um, retinitis pigmentosa is a disease that causes blindness, progressive blindness, and many of the genes that cause that act in a dominant fashion. So you they tend to be inherited in families from one generation to the next. And if you get a copy of the defective gene, that, um, you know, you can get retinitis pigmentosa. And that's something that happens to run in my family. So it was a research interest for me. But those are so those are sort of classic disease inheritance scenarios. There's also X-linked disease where typically uh, if you get a copy of the X chromosome, from your mom that carries a defective gene, since you only get one X chromosome if you happen to be a male, typically X-linked diseases we see more often in men than women. And so, but they can be passed 
down through women who may or may not be symptomatic at all. They can be simply carriers of it. So there are a lot of different ways these genetic disorders can be transmitted and inherited. There's also um, de novo mutation, like mutations that happen that occur brand new in a person that can cause disease. And so in that case, you might not have a family history of disease, but a newly arising mutation that's just in you and not in your parents can cause disease too. So there are lots of different ways you can get genetic disorders, unfortunately, and that's kind of why we're in business, why we're trying to find out what the causes are. Hey, Dan, okay. I, I got, My I got a question. Away here. <laughs> I got a question for you. So people's genetics can change over time? You're asking that like I said that, but I did not say that. Okay. I was trying I was trying to wrap my head around it because you were like genetic mutations and I was like, wait a minute. I'm I was just a little bit confused. So, so the kind of mutation that so yes, people's genetics can change over time. The kind of mutation I was talking about, de novo mutation, that usually happens around conception. So all of your cells get to change and that's why it can cause disease. Not always. Sometimes it's just a subset of your cells can have it. But Generally speaking, your DNA is, is pretty much the same throughout the course of life. However, over time, um, as your cells continue to grow and divide and DNA gets copied, there are occasionally errors that can be introduced. So we call these somatic mutations. Somatic just means in a cell. Um, and that is one of the ways that people get cancer. They acquire a mutation in, say, a tumor suppressor gene that turns off something that would normally prevent a tumor from arising, and it can contribute to how to how certain people get cancer. So exposure to carcinogens, for example, is something that increases the number of mutations that you get over time and just increases your odds of getting cancer. Okay, so that splitting and copying and splitting and copying and doing all that, could that be the defects that could potentially occur, could that be equated to the old idea of using a tape, tape recorder, where you would copy a tape and then copy another tape and then copy that tape and then copy that tape. And by about the third or about the fourth or fifth generation of the copy of a copy of a copy, it's degraded so much that it's actually not fantastic anymore. Is that, could that be like an analogy? Well, I like to think that our, uh, DNA replication machinery is a little more sophisticated than an audio tape. That's just me. Because uh, <laughs> if we were really relying on that technology, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, true. But could it still be a, a, a gross it, analogy? It is, kind of, it is sort of an appropriate analogy, and except that you know it's not one single master cell that makes all the cells in your body. It's a number of cells give rise to those. So we do – so one of the ways we can – more easily study this is in blood because your blood cells turn over uh, like every couple weeks and um, the the stem cells that produce them are in your bone marrow and over time those stem cells can acquire mutations and then those mutations appear in the blood cells so you can measure these uh, sort of the frequency of these quote-unquote somatic mutations in blood and see how they arise over time and, and how they change in um in leukemia, there's a stem cell that acquires like a, a cancer predisposition mutation, and then it gives rise to these blood cells that either grow too fast or don't differentiate the way that they're supposed to and become different kinds of blood cells. And so that's another way that we can track kind of 
how does DNA change and how can it cause diseases, looking at leukemia and what types of changes in the bone marrow give rise to a genetic disease that we see in the blood. You know, that is actually making a lot of sense to me now um, because I used to work with some cancer researchers and they were always so interested in knowing genetic structures. And I was like, but why? Why? This doesn't make sense. But now it's it's starting to make sense now why they were so interested in the genetic side of things as well. So obviously there are some cancers that are related to genetic structures. Not all, but some. Well, all all cancer is a genetic every type of cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease. It it arises due to a genetic change in your cells. That's sort of the unifying premise. Now, how that particular change arose and where it arose can affect what type of cancer you get and, and what happens with it. But basically, a, a tumor that's in someone has a slightly different genetic make, makeup than the rest of their healthy cells, almost always. So one of the reasons that the field of cancer research really benefited from the Human Genome Project and the improving of DNA technologies is now we can take a tumor sample from a cancer patient and we can take a sample of healthy tissues, say blood, and we can sequence the genomes of both and look for differences that are, have arisen in the tumor DNA that aren't in the normal healthy DNA. And that can sometimes explain why the person got cancer. It can also sometimes point to uh, a targeted type of therapy that can that could be used on the patient. So that is routinely becoming a standard of care in cancer hospitals is depending on the type of tumor and, and stage and all this stuff. Often there's a genetic test that's done with the tumor DNA and the normal DNA to see if there are any what we would call actionable mutations, like things that could tell you what drug the patient might respond best to. So there's definitely very strong interest in genetics and genomics among cancer researchers because they understand that at its core, it's a genetic disease. Cool. I think I can cope with that concept. What about you, Jess? I definitely like that that idea. The fact that the genome project and mapping genetics and all that could help us cure cancer. That sounds pretty yeah. awesome. That does sound awesome. Okay. So how much of our DNA do we pass on to our children? Hey, Doc. Yes? You think we Oh, could... we've hit 30 minutes, haven't we? Yeah. We need an ad break. We do. Okay. So we'll have an ad break and I'll hold that thought. All right. Thanks, Doc. I've owned my company for 14 years now, and I can tell you that payroll is a four-letter word. I hate doing it. It eats up hours I don't have, and it costs me money I could be saving. But my accountant's too expensive, and I'm not sure who to call. But I know I need help. We're Paychecks, and we take all the hassles out of small business payroll. We save you time and money. It's easy. Call, fax, or give us your payroll information securely online, and we take care of the rest. We calculate the correct taxes, manage payments and direct deposits. We even send out your checks. Payroll doesn't need to be a four-letter word anymore. We're so sure that we can save you time and money that we'll give you a month's payroll free. Just for calling 877-757-2782. Get one month's payroll for free. Call Paychex right now. 
877-757-2782. That's 877-757-2782. All writers are prone to becoming so attached to our characters and stories that we struggle to see why a passage may not be working. It takes another set of eyes to help us nurture our writing to full maturity. At Black Wolf Editorial Services, we strive to enable writers to develop and grow, shaping stories into masterpieces that can stand the test of time. Editing services are provided for all genres and all age categories. Services range from the critique of the short story through to line edits on full-length novels. We also offer assistance on generating writer's bios for your websites. We won't abandon you to the masses. We want to celebrate with you in your successes. Black Wolf Editorial Services, nurturing your writing into maturity. For a full list of services and prices, visit us at blackwolfeditorial.com. KLRN Radio has advertising rates available. We have rates to fit almost any budget. Contact us at advertising at klrnradio.com. Hey folks, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Dr. Richard Harden. We are on the same mission, which is Waking Up America. We just have different paths. So stay tuned for some information on how you can keep up with Richard and all his work. Visit Richard's website at raharden.com. That's the World Wide Web at rahardin.com. At his website, you can see a summary of the six books he has written, where purchases may be made. He also has a link to 18 videos on YouTube and several blogs about Christian beliefs. If you prefer, visit amazon.com backslash Kindle and type in Richard Harden to see and purchase his books. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps stand ready to defend the American way of life. The few, the proud, the Marines. Thanks for holding your thoughts, Doc. Not a problem, Jess. Right, so what were we thinking? I was thinking DNA and passing it on to our children. For those of you who just joined us, we are actually joined today by Dan Cobalt, who is a geneticist. I'm not an expert in all these fields, so sometimes it's actually best to go to an expert. And that's why Dan's with us today. So, Dan, you've been talking about DNA sequencing, and we talked just before the ad break about how the Genome Project could help us lead to cancer um, cures. But my question now is how much of our DNA do we actually pass on to our children? All right. That was a good question. So you pass on about 50% of your DNA to each of your child. The other 50% they get from the other parent. And so, so typically you and, you and each of your parents have about 50% of your DNA in common. Uh, same thing with you and your siblings, right, assuming you have the same set of parents. And you're also related to your grandparents, right? 25% of your DNA is in common with your grandparents, so a lot. So the answer is a lot. You contribute a lot of your of the DNA to your child. Especially considering how many base pairs you said there were. Right. That right. that's a I mean, lot of information. Right. And I don't know how much you want to go into the underlying biology stuff, but basically you contribute one copy of each chromosome to your child and they get the other copy of that chromosome from the other parent. Um the only time it's slightly different is obviously 
if you're a man and you pass on a Y chromosome, that's a son. You pass on an X chromosome, that's a daughter. And a mom can only pass on an X chromosome. But but generally speaking, you give one copy of each chromosome to, to each child. They get the other one from their parents, and that's why you're 50% related. Okay. I think I can cope with that. That's, that right. makes sense, Dan. That does. I can follow that one. Okay, good. Then <laughs> I explained it well. I'm glad to hear that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I've heard so many times that monkeys and apes are our cousins. <laughs> Jess. <laughs> okay. How much DNA do we actually share with some of the other species on our planet? So it depends on the species, but um, if you compare us with chimpanzee, which is one of the closest non-human primates, it's like 99%. 99%? So really? Right. So that 1% wow. difference, wow, I, I'm sorry, I'm just struggling to, un, to comprehend that that's such a little amount of difference. But yet, it's based on the numbers that you have given us in terms of the amount of chromosomes and, and bits and pieces that are part of the DNA. That's still a lot of difference. That's still a lot of is, cellular levels. Wow. That is true. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like much. You're like, oh, psh, you know, less than 1% difference, except that that's across 3.2 billion base pairs. So it's millions and millions of differences that have evolved over thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, so uh, we have like lot. 5 or 10% of our DNA is in common with mouse and rats. So, you know, there's that. And how about cats and dogs? How much DNA do we have in common with your house pet? Uh, it, with, with all mammals, it's, I mean, it, it's usually between like five and 20%. I, I don't happen to know because I'm not partial to either cats or dogs. I obviously didn't uh, cast my vote by memorizing that figure, but, um, you know, this is, people may feel how they feel about evolution, but we can look at this, the completed sequence of, of one organism and compare that to the other and we can infer how much they have in common and sometimes make conclusions about how long ago those were the same species. Okay. So to throw a probably another curveball at you and I apologize for doing this, evolution. Okay. Human evolution. You you were saying before that obviously um, DNA over time does evolve a little bit. It does change. At what sort of rate is human, a, human DNA changing? Is there a, that's another a, that's evolution a stage? Yes. So there, you know, the, the main way that DNA com- changes um, is through mutation and other processes that can happen over time, like genetic drift. But if you're asking about what's the, what is the rate at which DNA changes across generations, they have reasonably good estimates of that now from sequencing parents and children. And the rate is something like um, one times 10 to the minus eighth is the rate of mutation. So that's just how many bases mutate from a parent to a child. And so, so that's quite slow, that, isn't it? That's it's very, yeah, the, the rate is very, very low. But that's still a couple hundred differences between you and your parents overall. 
And most of those will have little to no effect, right? Um, if they don't change some fundamental piece of DNA, then they're generally neutral. But over time, over millions of years, as those mutations occur from parents to children and natural selection happens, that can create entirely new species and species can evolve all that good stuff. So that's getting into a pretty wide territory that I'm happy to talk about, but you know, if you want to stick with genetics and no. genomics. Yeah, we'll human. stick with genetics. But would that also explain why the children seem to be getting taller as well? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I think that's probably more related to nutrition than anything, but, uh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I had to ask. I just had to ask because I feel short now compared to my son. No, Very I mean, short. I think that's a, a good question <laughs> to ask because it's a good reminder that a lot of the things we think about may not necessarily be just from genetics. Like um, we're doing other things to improve human existence over time, like putting fluoride in the water and getting people to drink milk and eat healthy and that sort of stuff. And that can have big impacts on things like the height of the future generations. Okay. I'm going to put another sci-fi spin on this. Star Trek. You had Khan and his wonderful band of genetically modified people who were smarter, stronger. Um, they had better acuity. Can we actually manipulate DNA to do that to people? Well, uh, can is an interesting word there, isn't it? Is it technically possible versus is it legal to uh, are two different questions. Exactly. So (laughs) there are definitely new and improved technologies for genetic modification, especially genetic modification of living cells, which is what it would take to sort of modify a person. But, you know, humans have been kind of engaging in in genetic selection in one form or another for some time now, right? There's in vitro fertilization. There are ways to screen for if you're going through IVF and having and you and your and your partner have some sort of inherited disease susceptibility, there are ways to screen sometimes to see which which embryos are carriers of that and and those can be not implanted versus implanted, but um, there are also newer technologies that let us change DNA, like change specific DNA bases. One of them is called CRISPR-Cas, and this is a system that evolved in bacteria. It was like a defense mechanism for bacteria. They often get invaded by viruses, right? That's if you're a bacterium, you're worried about getting infected by a virus. And so one of their defense mechanisms is is to chop up the DNA of invading viruses. And that has actually provided a number of different tools that we use now for modern genetic engineering. And one of these is this um, is CRISPR-Cas9. Cas9 is an enzyme. And CRISPR refers to these um, palindromic repeats that form this really unique structure. It's like a cassette structure of DNA that can be used to um, do a targeted deletion or targeted change of DNA in a cell. So you build this template that is like this 
cassette tape that you were talking about earlier, but hopefully a little more precise than that, and say, okay, I want you to find a sequence that looks like this and make this change. And then Cas9 is the enzyme that actually makes the change. So they these technologies do exist and have been used to do a lot of genetic modification, especially in um, crops and and model organisms that we study for science. And even though there's kind of this uh, moratorium that was signed by a number of, of leading nations a couple of years ago saying, hey, we recognize there's a lot of new technologies that maybe could be used to change a human genome, but we're going to agree not to change the genomes of any living, you know, of any embryos uh, until we understand better this, you know, the implications of this technology, et cetera. Not every nation signed that agreement. Uh, China was a nation that declined participating in that. And about a year and a half ago, they some Chinese scientists published a paper where they applied this genome editing technique to human embryos to show that it was possible to alter like a uh, a known disease-causing mutation and replace it with the healthy, normal sequence of DNA that should be there. So okay. this this kind of we, was received with <laughs> – is this news to you? I mean – Yeah, yeah, that was very much news to me. I mean, you can't see my face, but the moment you said that, my eyes shot up. And I was just like, holy moly. Oh, this is opening up a major can of worms. I could see this – turning into both wonderful things because I can see it being, you know, we're, we're dealing with some of the genetic diseases that we were talking about before and, and potentially eliminating those diseases from the human race. And, and I can see that being a very good thing, but I can also see this turning into designer babies. (laughs) Yeah. Designer babies. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, so I think in the study from China, they were using embryos that weren't viable for some reason or another, as I recall. So they didn't like make an, a grown up person out of those, but they were just showing that it's possible to to modify human embryos with this technology that we got out of bacteria. But you can imagine there are implications. Now, it's still not a perfect technology. Um, it's not point and click by any means. It's difficult to do. And I think there's a deeper intellectual challenge behind that, which is understanding what changes should be made and when should they be made and what are the right circumstances for it and what are the ethical and legal and social implications um, of being able to modify human DNA that will eventually become a real human. Um, so it's, it is a tough question. And you can imagine very Usually we like to think about the positive stuff like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could cure some of these genetic diseases that we know that we've studied and know rather well. But you could also imagine that something like that could be exploited like Khan did, right, to try and build the yeah. the race of super organisms. Now, I mean, one thing that hampers both goals is that the human genome is really, really complex and it's hard to understand what even one single change will do across the lifetime of a human that's made up of millions of cells, but um, the potential is there. That's kind of wow. scary, Dan. I got to admit it. That's kind of scary. And also kind of so Now good. you understand why we had a moratorium, right? Yeah. yeah. We need to wait till we get a better grasp on this stuff. Wow. I, I'm, I'm blown away to, to even 
know that the technology is there. I mean, it's good for me from the science fiction writer perspective, but yeah, I'm, I'm blown away. I really don't know what to say. Right. Well, I mean, and so we have already seen some effects of the intersection of genetic technologies and things like in vitro fertilization, for example, um, it's relatively easy to determine in an embryo before implant implantation, if it's going to be a boy or a girl. And in some countries where uh, that technology exists, since that it's become available, we've seen a dramatic shift in what are the ultimate genders of babies that are born with IVF. And it might surprise you or it might not to learn that it's like 70% male now, not 50-50 as it should be. Okay. Actually, it doesn't surprise me that, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but it's also kind of freaky because that means there's going to be fewer women and no offense, but women, don't you, you need a woman to reproduce. So are we, you know, that leads me down the thought process of population decline and all kinds of other freaky things. Because while I'm not a writer, Dan, I am an avid reader and I read science fiction and thrillers and all kinds of crazy things and I could just see these plots forming. Right. And um, I don't know if you know the book Dune by Frank Herbert. Yep. Yes. Got a copy. There's, a, there's a race in Dune where they don't appear to have any women and it's because of some pretty horrifying things that are actually happening on the home world. But they, that idea has already kind of been explored in science fiction, as have many of these ideas of genetic manipulation and pretty much any interesting science you can think about has been explored in science fiction already. Wow. I am I, I think I've learned quite a bit and my I'm just wow. Okay. Um Doc you know, we've been talking about science fiction for quite some time now. Doc. You're a writer, Dan. What's up? I just got to say, I don't normally hear you speechless. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Dan, you're, you're a writer yourself. We've been talking about science fiction writing. How much of your work leaks into your writing? We're going to just, just come away from genetics for a while, and we're just going to talk about another passion that you and I both share, writing. Right. Science fiction. How much of it? Yeah. How much of your work leaks in? Uh, it depends on the project. So you know, the trilogy I'm writing for Harper Voyager is about a Las Vegas magician who infiltrates a medieval world. And so that's a fantasy novel as well as science fiction. But there's not a huge genetic component to that. Right. So in that case, I'd say um, not as much. But um, I have another novel that's about um, a company that designs custom-made dragons for use in the home using genetic technologies. And that leans a lot on my day-to-day -day experience as a working geneticist. So it Custom-made dragons. Oh, oh, you've made an instant fan. I'm a massive fan of dragons. Oh, I can't wait to see this manuscript come out. <laughs> hey, you and me both. I got to finish writing it first, though. Guess. That's the problem when, you know, you're writing about something that you know intimately and care about and you, you want to get it right. 
And sometimes but, yeah. that can be, sometimes that can help you. Sometimes it can hold you back. It just depends. But, Gotta um, say, Dan, you know, I love dragons too. So I'll be on the lookout for that one myself. <laughs> so I could ask you the same thing, Judy. How much of your science background goes into what you write? Uh, scarily, quite a bit. Because mine is very much a technical sort of side. So I have quite a bit of computer experience and quite a bit of a, the astronomical and, and building instruments. And most of my characters that are on the science, the actual science side, they're always building something. So my brain just goes there and I can't stop it. <laughs> but I found that in my fantasy um, stuff, the astronomy stuff is the astronomy novels and the, the astronomy concepts, they came in very quickly as well. So, yeah, I think it's because I'm not a geneticist. I'm not into that level. I'm more of the, in some respects, probably the old world science because that's what the astronomy is really old world science. It's not, not really new world science. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay. Doc, remember I beta read for you. You can't get away from science. Yeah, I know. I know. I try. I can't. Right. Dan, is there any other question that you can think of that we haven't asked you that you would like to share about genetics and tell us and make sure that we understand really what genetics is about? Well, um, I mean, I, I don't think we've tried to boil it down to really the the true fundamentals, but really the reason that I'm in genetics and most of my colleagues is that we're trying to improve human lives, right? And I work in a pediatric research hospital. We would like to improve the lives of patients and their families, especially those patients that have genetic diseases. So um, that's what we're all about. We're, we're doing it to try and help others. And so we rely significantly on, on, public research funds to do that. So keep that in mind, in mind when you are asked to vote on things. That's all I'll say. That sounds fine to me. Okay. I think we are coming to an end. So Dan, is there any place that people can contact you about maybe your writing or about maybe more if they want to learn more about genetics? How can people get I in got one last question, Doc. What was that? One last question? Oh, Jess. Okay. What? If somebody out there, maybe a, a teenager or a youngster, wants to get in genetics, what would you recommend they study, and how would you recommend they get into involved in the field? Oh, this is this is a great question. Um, so most most students will first encounter genetics as part of a biology course, and that's where I first encountered it. That's where it's usually taught. It's considered a branch of biology, and so. Typically, you'll encounter some of that in biology, and more and more high schools and colleges are offering specific courses about genetics. And so there are a lot of opportunities to learn more about it. There are also a lot of great Internet resources and books for learning pretty much whatever you would like to know about genetics and genomics. So um, the NIH has a lot of really nice website resources for for learning about DNA and genetics and differences in DNA, et cetera. And Dan? in April, they have uh, – in April, the NIH sponsored something called DNA Day. I want to say it's like April 21st or something. And all day, they have sort of running panels of experts who are waiting to answer questions about DNA and genetics and inheritance. And it's kind of a great 
opportunity to learn more about it and get involved with DNA that I, I usually go out and do a school visit on DNA Day every year. So in April, that's a good time to have an excuse to learn more about it. Okay, I want to clarify one thing that you said, NIH, National Institute of Health, correct? Yes, All National right. Institutes of Health in the U.S. that They fund the vast majority of research that happens in the U.S. biomedical research. So they're also uh, a very trustworthy authority for, for getting information because, you know, you can go to the Internet and get all kinds of information anywhere you want. But uh, finding trustworthy information is a little bit harder these days. So the NIH is a good place to start. So, okay. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you directly about genetics or about your writing or anything else, how do we do that? Uh, the best way to do that is to find my website. It's dancobalt.com, and that's K-O-B-O-L-D-T. Uh, I'm also on Twitter as Dan Cobalt, and that's a great place to find me and talk about genetics, science fiction, Whatever you want. Caffeine addiction, in your case, Jesse. Whatever you need. <laughs> yeah, and Dan Cobalt's site, website has got this awesome, awesome series that's on it that I just I constantly refer people to, which is the Science and Science Fiction blog post series. It's just so filled with amazing expert knowledge. I just love it. It's a fantastic site. And, yes, I've got a few posts there myself. <laughs> Right. That's. Uh, I mean, thanks for bringing that up. the The whole point of that series is to to have someone who's an expert in the field come and talk about their area of expertise as it relates to science fiction. So obviously, there were things you came to share about your background, and and we mm-hmm. have engineers, scientists, doctors, nurses. We have the whole gamut of experts on there, and do, do a new post every week. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, it's a great series, regardless whether you're a writer or not, just to see where science fiction gets it right, as well as where science fiction gets it seriously wrong. And it's just fantastic from that point of view. It's a really, really good series. I do recommend it for everyone to read. I got to admit, Dan, that I've been on that site going sniffing around some of those blog posts. That's okay. We we want people to sniff around. That's why they're there. <laughs> oh, trust me, I'm... I do. I'm an avid reader, as Doc will tell you. Yeah, no, it's you. a good series, and I really do recommend people go and read it. Okay, is there anything else you want to share with us, Dan? No, just want to say thanks for having me on today, and uh, I really enjoyed this. That's great, fantastic. So, I think Jess, I think that's the end of the show. All right, Doc. I think we're out of here. I think we are. Well, that brings us to an end of another Conversations in Science. If you have any questions about science and about some of the world around us, feel free to drop me a line. I'm on Twitter, and you can find me at Judy L. Moore. Or you can look me up on Facebook, Judy L. Moore. Or you can drop me a line on my personal website, JudyLmore.com. I think you're seeing the pattern here. Then, of course, if you are interested in some of the other projects I do, which is the writing and editing, feel free to check me out on blackwolfeditorial.com. But then, of course, don't forget, if you are wanting more information about the science, you can also contact us at the station with the email of science at klrnradio.com. Then, of course,
course, there's my cohort that keeps going through and popping up. You mean me, Doc? Well, for anybody who wants to track me down, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse's POV. And you can also drop me a line at the station at Jesse's POV at KLRNRadio.com. Bye, guys. Bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.